Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. Hello and welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. I'm delighted to be here with you today. This season we're talking about Roman emperors. It's a story based on my book, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. But it's a story that begins even earlier in my new book, published in March, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. We have three episodes this season. Last time, we talked about war and peace. Today, we're going to talk about mothers and sons. Mothers and sons. Why is that an important entree to Roman emperors? Well, the Romans, as you know, prided themselves on being tough guys. As men, they prided themselves on their virtue. That comes from the Latin word virtus, which means manliness. And of all the things that Romans were good at, war was probably number one. The Romans were disciplined. They were orderly. They were courageous. They were tough warriors. However, Roman men also were sons. And Roman men had important relationships with their mothers. Rome was one of those societies in history that had important, prominent women who put a great deal of emphasis on raising their children and raising their sons for greatness. Now, one of the reasons was very practical, and that is that women tended to marry earlier than men, and they tended to live longer than men. So there were many Roman men who lost their fathers at an early age for whom their mothers loomed very large indeed. Julius Caesar, for example, is one such case. Sometimes the relationship between a son and his mother was just great. And sometimes it was fraught. And sometimes it was even murderous. Well, we're going to look at three cases today of emperors who had remarkable relations with their mothers. We could have looked at other cases as well, but I chose these three because I thought they were particularly interesting and because there are studies in contrast. The three emperors we will look at are Tiberius, Nero, and Constantine. And their three mothers are Livia, the mother of Tiberius, Agrippina, the mother of Nero, and Helena, the mother of Constantine. So let's begin. Let's talk about Tiberius first. He reigned from 14 to 37. He was the second emperor of the Roman Empire. He had a hard act to follow because his predecessor was Augustus, the founder of the Roman monarchy. Augustus supposedly quipped on his deathbed that Tiberius would crunch Rome in his tough and obstinate jaws. Where Augustus was charming, Tiberius was stern and arrogant. He was tall, strong, and handsome, but he was also stiff, and he had the scars of a tough life. On the one hand, his stepfather was Augustus, and Augustus made it clear that Tiberius was never his first choice as his successor. But events forced 
Augustus to accept Tiberius uh, as the man who would follow him. On the other hand, Tiberius had one of the most powerful and influential women in Roman history as his mother, and she was Livia, Livia Drusilla, as she was called. She came from the height of the Roman aristocracy. She was the bluest of blue bloods, and she married Augustus when he was still a young man. They stayed together for 52 years. Even though she was unable to bear any children for Augustus, nonetheless, she was his soulmate, matching him in intelligence and ambition. She provided him with support and advice. And as one ancient writer said, Augustus loved and esteemed Livia to the end without a rival. Now, Augustus and Livia had each been married before, and they had children from their prior marriage. Augustus had a daughter named Julia, and Livia had two sons, Drusus and Tiberius. Tiberius was her older son. As I said, Livia was an extraordinarily powerful woman with great influence. Her husband had made her inviolable, sacrosanct, which meant that nobody could harm her on pain of death. Unlike most Roman women, she was freed from male guardianship, and she was honored in statues, and it was very unusual for a Roman woman to have a statue. She controlled enormous wealth. She ran a huge household, and she even sponsored public buildings. Her great-grandson, the emperor Caligula, called Livia Ulysses in a stola. Ulysses in a stola, what does that mean? Ulysses, or Odysseus, was the model of cunning, and a stola, or a stole, if you will, was a long, free-flowing linen robe, the traditional dress of a Roman woman, and thus the image of modesty. We might translate the phrase as Machiavelli in a twin set and pearls. Livia was one of Augustus's most trusted advisors. She was his traveling partner around the empire, even though previously Roman males had left their wives at home while on business abroad. When he discussed important matters with Livia, Augustus would write memoranda in advance and read them from a notebook in order to get things just right. For her part, Livia saved her letters from her husband, she kept them in a shrine, and she pulled them out when needed after his death. Now, contrary to legend, Livia wasn't a witch and she wasn't a poisoner. There are reports in novels and in TV drama that Livia was responsible for poisoning Augustus's nephew and then his two grandsons, each of whom he had hoped would succeed him. That's not true. They died of natural causes. And this critique of Livia is probably to be written off to misogyny since the Romans were not notably egalitarian in their views of women. But she was a powerful woman and an influential one. An art historian describes Livia as, quote, the first woman in the history of the West to be depicted systematically in portraits. And her influence lived on far after her husband's death. When Augustus died in the year 14, he had arranged for Tiberius to succeed him. As I said, Tiberius was not Augustus's first choice, and didn't Tiberius know it? Even though he was a very successful soldier, and even though he was skilled at politics, Tiberius was always shunted off to the side until finally Augustus had nobody else to choose as his successor, and he accepted Tiberius as the man who would replace him on the throne. 
In many ways, Augustus arranged for the smoothest transition possible. When Augustus was on his deathbed, Tiberius hurried to his side, and he was there, so he was able to say that there was a smooth and in-person handoff. But in other ways, Augustus tied Tiberius's hands. His mother, Livia, Tiberius's mother Livia, was 70 years old, but she was still vigorous, and Augustus left her strong tools. It was as if Augustus didn't entirely trust Tiberius, and he wanted to make sure his widow was still able to keep her finger on the power of Rome. Augustus had assured Livia's position by adopting her in his will as his daughter, which made her a member of the imperial family, the Julian family. No less important, Augustus's will named Livia as Augusta. This was a new title. It had never been used before, and nobody was precisely sure what it meant. She now had the prestigious title of Julia Augusta, which placed her in Rome's first family, in effect continuing Augustus's power beyond the grave. And poor Tiberius, his mother, had so much authority over him, and that wasn't the end of the story. She was also the first priestess of the cult of the deified Augustus. Now that Augustus was dead, he was declared a god, and Livia was the first priestess. No woman held a major priesthood in Rome aside from the Vestal Virgins, but Livia now did. With her new office, there also came the right to have a bodyguard whenever she carried out her new religious duties, and many other honors followed. She was one of the richest people in the empire, was Livia, and unlike most Roman women, she received complete control of her property. Augustus had bequeathed her one-third of his estate, while he gave the other two-thirds to Tiberius. Livia owned property both in Italy and in several provinces east and west. As a woman, Livia couldn't be a senator, but she received senators in her home where a huge staff waited on them. All in all, Livia employed over a thousand people. Livia served as a bridge between the reigns of her husband and her son. Not only was she the living link to the founder of the dynasty, but also she was de facto first lady, since Tiberius was divorced and he had no mistress. Well, how did Tiberius feel about this? How did he feel having such a powerful mother? On the one hand, he might have appreciated the continuity. With Livia having all these honors and with her being around, nobody could question whether he was a legitimate successor to Augustus. On the other hand, he must have resented the power of his mother. We know that he resented the power of his mother because he imposed limits on her. For example, early in Tiberius's reign, the Senate wanted to give Livia an unprecedented title, the mother of her country. Tiberius vetoed that. As for the Senate's suggestion that he be named the son of Julia, that his official name be the son of Julia, Tiberius vetoed that as well. And finally, the Senate wanted to rename the month of October after his mother. They wanted to change the name of October to Livius. Tiberius rejected that as well. He preferred the title son of a god, which Tiberius had by the virtue of Augustus's deification. So Tiberius tried to put some limits on his mother's power. But it wasn't easy to stop Livia. She threw her weight around from time to time in public life, advancing a friend here, granting special privileges to an ally there, 
now dedicating statues in her name in Tiberius's, now inviting senators to a reception in her home. You know, Tiberius generally accepted all this, and he tried to work behind the scenes to present a united front. This is especially true in the earlier part of his reign, but as time went by, he grew less patient with his mother. Well, five years after Tiberius became emperor, there was a crisis. One of the other things that Augustus had done before he died to tie Tiberius's hands was that he insisted that Tiberius name his nephew, not his son, as his successor. His nephew was a man named Germanicus. He was the son of Tiberius's late brother, and he was married to Augustus's granddaughter. So Germanicus's children would be Augustus's great-grandchildren. And Germanicus was sort of the poster child of the new regime. He was the fair-haired lad. He had been a successful general, though not as successful as he claimed he was. And after serving in Germany, he was posted to Syria. While he was there, he fell sick. Germanicus claimed that he'd been poisoned, and he suspected the governor of Syria and his wife. And then in October of the year 19, October, mind you, not Livius, Germanicus died, age 33. There was an uproar. His ashes were returned to Rome, and the governor of Syria was recalled to Rome and forced to stand trial before the Senate. He was convicted of lesser crimes than murder, but he committed suicide before the sentencing. His wife was also forced back to Rome, but she had a powerful protector, none other than Livia. And Livia had her son Tiberius intercede on behalf of the governor's wife and arrange her acquittal. Livia and Tiberius now had a united front. Many people in Rome pointed a finger at them. They said that Tiberius had been jealous of Germanicus, and Livia was supposedly behind him, and they were blamed as the real cause of Germanicus's death. Now, they were distant, and they were elitist, and they could not match Germanicus's common touch or his popularity. Surely they resented him. They were only human. But murder? Well, that's another matter. And even for mommy dearest Livia and for Tiberius, I doubt that they had any guilt at all in the death of Germanicus. Now, Tiberius stays in Rome for the next seven years. And then in the year 26, at the age of 68, Tiberius leaves Rome. He retires to the island of Capri, off the coast of Naples. It's a beautiful place. He spent the rest of his reign there the next 11 years. So for 12 years, he was emperor in Rome. And for 11 years, he was in Capri. (laughs) Why did he leave Rome? Well, some people said the answer to that was simple. He left to get away from his mother, Livia. Perhaps he might have had other reasons. Surely he had had his fill of that very strong personality. One story says that the two quarreled after Livia made a crony of her as a juryman. Tiberius accepted it, but he criticized her in public. And then Livia drove Tiberius over the edge by pulling out old letters from Augustus that she had kept for safekeeping in a shrine, letters that called Tiberius grim and stubborn. Tiberius was too disciplined to respond emotionally to such a low blow, if it ever happened. In any case, he enjoyed his revenge cold. Three years after Tiberius withdrew to Capri, Livia died. It was the year 29. Tiberius did not return to Rome for her funeral, and her burial 
in the mausoleum of Augustus. Now, this was really remarkable. I mean, it was a real slap to his mother not to do that. But it was also a contrast to what had happened years earlier when his brother was dying, having been mortally injured in Germany. Tiberius dashed across northern Europe to reach the side of his brother. But he did not dash back to Rome for his mother's funeral. Earlier in the year 22, when Tiberius had been outside of Rome, he hurried back quickly at the news that Livia was ill and she survived. So in these various ways, Tiberius showed his displeasure after his mother's death. But there was something even more than that. Livia's fondest wish was that after she died, she be made a goddess. And the Senate decreed that she could be, but Tiberius refused. He wouldn't let her be made a goddess. It was a sign of what he thought of her. The Senate also voted a triumphal arch in Livia's honor, and it would have been the first such arch ever for a woman. But Tiberius made sure it was never built. Well, Livia had to wait posthumously. Ultimately, a later emperor, her grandson, the Emperor Claudius, finally granted her her wish, deified her, and made her a goddess. But her son, well, he had a different relationship with his mother. He owed his mother a lot. His mother had always looked out for him and made sure that he never got forgotten in the court of Augustus. And although there were others who might have stood in his way, she made sure that Tiberius was ready when fate finally turned to him. And yet Tiberius' emperor resented her. Still, no one could deny the importance of Livia's role. She could honestly consider herself the bringer of a new order, a woman who had served both as wife and mother of the first citizen, someone who was a member in good standing of one of the oldest families of Rome, but also the Julia Augusta, a woman who had both renovated the Republic and buried it. Rome had known powerful women before, but never one to match Livia. Let's turn now to the Emperor Nero, who reigned between 54 and 68. Nero is the most famous and the most infamous, I think, of the Roman emperors, and in some ways a lot of fun, though not so much fun to be living under. His mother, too, was a powerful Roman woman. Her name was Agrippina the Younger. We call her the Younger because her mother was also called Agrippina, but we'll call Agrippina the Younger just Agrippina for the rest of today's conversation. She was one of the greatest noble women in Rome. She had the magic of her descent. On her mother's side, she was descended from the divine Augustus. She was also descended from Livia, who was her great-grandmother. She was descended from Germanicus and Mark Antony. She had one of the greatest pedigrees in Rome. So blue-blooded was she that ultimately the emperor Claudius, who was a widower, he married her, even though Agrippina was his niece and the marriage was technically incest. The Senate had to pass a special decree to permit it. A statue of Agrippina shows a woman with delicate features. She has a small mouth, a slightly turned up nose, and a pronounced chin. Her hair is carefully arranged into ringlets in the style of the day. The statue shows her as a priestess with head veiled. But Agrippina was no saint. She was a tough lady. She published a memoir, now lost, which might be the source of the detail that she had an extra canine tooth on her right upper jaw. 
which is a sign of good luck for the Romans, but which surely also stands for aggression. The ancient literary sources are hostile to Agrippina, as they are to all women in politics. They depict her as scheming, power-hungry, incestuous, and a murderer. Visual images, on the other hand, coins, sculpture, and cameo, show a dignified, attractive woman who is a symbol of motherhood and dynasty. Maybe the truth lies somewhere in between. She certainly was a fierce competitor, and she unhesitatingly had rivals executed, but she wasn't the only Roman who behaved in that way. She wanted her son to succeed. She was immensely ambitious, and she wanted her son to be nothing less than emperor. Now, in that, she was selfish, but she was also public-spirited. She knew that her son represented the only chance to continue the House of Augustus and Germanicus, and she believed that it represented the best hope for Rome and the empire. When she married the Emperor Claudius, she saw herself not just his wife, but his co-ruler. She was named Augusta, a title that no wife of a reigning emperor had had before. Agrippina sometimes joined Claudius when he was conducting public business and sat on a separate tribunal, a power play that shocked contemporaries. She collected friends and banished enemies. Above all, she cleared a path to the purple for her son. Her son was Nero, and he was the product of Agrippina's first marriage. He'd been born in the year 37 in a seaside town south of Rome. He was named Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus, Bronzebeard, as Latin means, after his father. The family were diehard Republicans, with noble ancestors going back centuries. They were known for generalship, arrogance, and cruelty, as well as for racing chariots, as well as for sponsoring an indecent theatrical production. Nero's father supposedly said of their young son, quote, It is impossible for any good man to be sprung from me and this woman. <laughs> he would not have long to find out, as he died when Nero was three. So Nero lost his father at an early age, and he was raised by his mother. Agrippina worked tirelessly to advance Nero's career, but she paid a price for it. Nero was 11 when his mother married Claudius. Within a year, she had convinced Claudius to adopt Nero, who dropped his previous name and became Nero Claudius Caesar Drusus Germanicus. This was something of a surprise because Nero was older than Claudius' son. Claudia had a birth son, and Nero was older than him. And that meant that now Nero stood first in the line of inheritance. Claudius also betrothed his daughter Octavia to Nero. In short, Claudius decided to put Agrippina's son ahead of his own. Why did he do this? Claudius was now about 60, and some people think he was just an old man who was fooled by his new young wife. Well, maybe. Or maybe he reasoned that his dynasty stood a better chance of surviving through the heirs of his daughter and of Nero than through his son by his disgraced first wife. In any case, Agrippina did not hold back. She was a power broker. In the year 54... Five years after he married Agrippina, Claudius seemed to have a change of heart. He decided to advance the career of his birth son, who had turned 13. But before Claudius could make a move, he died suddenly. People naturally suspected poisoning by Agrippina, but the truth about his death is unrecoverable today. He might have died from a poisonous but not poisoned mushroom, or from natural causes. In any case, Agrippina was prepared to put her own son on center stage. The Praetorian Guard hailed Nero as emperor, and he rewarded them with a big cash payout. The Senate tamely voted Nero the necessary powers and rewarded Agrippina with honors. The new era had begun. 
Agrippina was determined to exercise power. At the beginning of Nero's reign, she had her own German bodyguards, her own union of Praetorian guards, and she had two attendants to accompany her in public. This was more than Livia had. Livia only had one such attendant. Young Nero accepted all this at first. The watchword that he gave the Praetorians was optima mater, Latin for the best mother. He agreed to hold Senate meetings in the palace, which was not unprecedented. But the reason he did so was that his mother, Agrippina, this allowed her to watch through a curtain, which was definitely unprecedented. Coins depicted Agrippina facing Nero as if she were co-ruler. But Agrippina soon ran into obstacles. Roman public opinion would not tolerate a woman exercising too much power overtly. Meanwhile, Nero was a teenage boy, and he hated being criticized by his mother for not watching his spending. Nero retaliated by stopping Agrippina in public from joining him on the podium to hear a foreign embassy. He did it tactfully with his tutor's help, but a rebuke is still a rebuke. It was said that Agrippina was fuming. She could give her son the empire, but she couldn't bear him ruling it. Now, Nero had been forced to marry Claudius's daughter. He wasn't happy about this. He fell in love with a woman from the east, with a woman from what is today Turkey, and she was an ex-slave. He was smitten. He even talked about marrying her. Agrippina was horrified. An ex-slave? And she let her son know it, but he wouldn't budge. He strengthened his position by getting rid of a powerful man who was Agrippina's strongest ally at court. And then, suddenly, Claudius's son took sick at a court banquet, and he died shortly afterwards. The evidence suggests natural causes, but many people at the time believed that he had been poisoned on Nero's order. Or was it on Nero's mother's order? Well, for the next four years, Agrippina was shot out of power, although she tried to work her way back. By the year 59, when he was 21, Nero was ready to settle down. But first, he made a terrible decision. He decided to get rid of his mother. There were rumors of incest, probably just malicious gossip, although it is plausible that Agrippina flirted with Nero in a highly inappropriate manner. What is clear is that once again she expressed disapproval of his love life, this time over his infatuation with Papea Sabina. Papea came from a wealthy family, and she was one of the great beauties of the day. No wonder she has been played in the movies by Claudette Colbert and Brigitte Bardot. Nero wrote a poem about Papea's amber hair. She took a daily bath in the milk of 500 asses to preserve her skin, and she inspired a line of cosmetics named after her. She was six years older than Nero and married, but so was he. Nero was deeply in love with her. Some claim that she urged him to kill Agrippina. Entirely aside from his love life, Nero might have feared Agrippina's continuing influence with the Praetorian guards, those guards of the palace. Consciously and deliberately, Nero chose to kill his mother. But how? Poison was out of the question. Too suspect after the sudden deaths of Claudius and his son. And besides, Agrippina took enough antidotes to protect her. The Praetorian guard was unreliable. They were too loyal to Agrippina. So Nero turned to an ally in the Roman navy. On a spring night in the Bay of Naples, a plot 
unfolded. First, Nero invited his mother to a banquet to settle past differences and to soften her up. Then he planned to drown her in a specially constructed collapsing boat. So the story goes. More likely, a warship deliberately rammed her boat. Yet Agrippina fell into the sea and she was injured, but she survived and she was brought back to shore. Terrified of Agrippina's revenge, Nero turned to the head of the Praetorian Guard, but he refused to help. The Praetorian Guard, he said, would not injure Agrippina because she was the daughter of the great Germanicus. So Nero went back to the Navy and he sent a detachment of Marines after Agrippina. He claimed to have discovered that she was trying to kill him. When the troops reached Agrippina, she refused to believe their announcement that they were there to execute her on Nero's orders. My son wouldn't do that, she insisted. Then they hit her, and she realized the truth. She has said to have bared her womb and told the men to strike there. Did she really say that? If so, it's unlikely that she admitted that her own failings as a mother had made Nero into the fiend that he was. When Nero's freedman and head of the major naval base nearby agreed to kill Agrippina, Nero said that this day had given him rule of the empire. But later, Nero hated the man for killing his mother because, as an ancient source says, we look on accomplices and evil deeds with a kind of reproach. So Nero got the man to confess to a crime he hadn't committed and sent him off to a comfortable exile. How did Nero live with himself? As overbearing as his mother was, he had ordered her murder. In later years, when he performed roles in Greek tragedy, Nero included in his repertory both a man who slept with his mother and a man who killed his mother. Calling Dr. Freud, the choice might indicate, as the sources claim, that Nero felt remorse for his crime, but he certainly didn't show it at the time. At the time, he had it announced that he had foiled a plot by Agrippina to kill him. His advisor even wrote a letter to the Senate vouching for that cover story. What did people really think? We don't know, but they accepted Nero's excuse. Days of thanksgiving were proclaimed for his safety, and sacrifices were made upon his safe return to Rome. And so Nero continued as emperor, this time without his mother. Grimly, he had ended her influence. For our next case, we're going to jump ahead several centuries. And we're going to look at one of the greatest of the Roman emperors, Constantine, the man who refounded the emperor, the man who founded one of the greatest cities of the world, Constantinople, the modern Istanbul, and the man who set the empire on the path to become a Christian empire. Constantine was the first Christian emperor. He ruled from 306 to 337. He was born in what is today Serbia in the year 273. At the time of his birth, his father, Constantius, who came from what is now Bulgaria, was a junior officer in the Roman army. Constantine's mother was Helena. She was the respectable but humble daughter of the owner of a small hotel on the main military highway 
in what is today northwestern Turkey. Constantius met her there in 272, when he was on a military campaign with the then emperor. They fell in love, and they married. And nine months later, their son Constantine was born in what is today Serbia. Constantius rose quickly in the military ranks, and by the time his son Constantine was 10, Constantius was already a provincial governor. Constantius now had the resources to give the boy a superb education, especially in Latin literature, but it included Greek too, as well as philosophy. And Constantine was trained to be a soldier like his father. Well, Constantine was probably in his early teens when his father divorced his mother, Helena. He married up. Constantius was now sufficiently prominent in the Roman Empire that he was able to marry a princess, the daughter of the ruler of the Western Empire. At this point, the empire was divided into two emperors. Constantius remained close to his son Constantine, and he groomed him for a great future. Still, the divorce was surely a blow. Constantine was very close to his mother, and she was very close to her son. She made a great effort, Helena did, to protect and nourish her son. She was one of the most important figures in his life, and she remained so for the next three decades. Like Livia or Agrippina, Helena played a big role in the adult life of an emperor. But it was a much more wholesome story and a much more wholesome relationship than we've seen before. So as Constantine advanced in his career, he went to the court of the emperor Diocletian, which was located in what is nowadays Turkey, near what is nowadays Istanbul. It was a school of power politics. Among the other lessons it offered was that anything was possible for a man who was ambitious and talented enough. The emperor himself, Diocletian, had risen from obscurity to supreme power. And Constantine had great ambitions. And while he was there, there's evidence that his mother was there with him to support him, to encourage him, to give him advice. Constantine eventually left the court of Diocletian. He went to the West. And Diocletian was a great persecutor of Christianity. He launched the worst persecution that the church had ever encountered. Constantine, however, declined to enforce persecution decrees against Christians. In doing so, he followed in the footsteps of his father. Now, neither Constantine or his father was a Christian. They were both pagans. But what about Helena? Well, there's reason to think that she was a Christian. First of all, she came from Western Turkey, a very heavily Christian area. Now, what do the ancient sources say? Our most important source for the life of Constantine says otherwise. It maintains that after Constantine converted to Christianity, he converted his mother as well. But later church historians say that it was Helena who raised him to become a Christian. What's the truth? We can't really be sure. Each of these authors had his own agendas. It's hard to say where the truth lies. At a minimum, it's clear that Christianity meant a great deal to Constantine. Well, the story of his conversion is a well-known one. Constantine made a play to become ruler of the Western Roman Empire and then eventually the entire Roman Empire. And in the year 312, he was poised to fight for Rome. He fought a battle outside of Rome, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge on the north of Rome. And before the battle, he saw a vision. It was a vision of a cross. And the vision said, in this sign you will conquer. 
Constantine had already become a Christian. He'd seen an earlier vision in Gaul. And now, having seen this vision before the battle, he had his soldiers carry a Christian symbol into battle. The first two letters of Christ, the Greek letters Chi and Rho. And indeed, they conquered. He won the battle. He entered Rome as emperor. The year was 312, and he was the first Christian emperor. Now, afterwards, Constantine slowly goes about the process of encouraging Romans to convert to Christianity. He tolerated all religions, but he especially supported Christianity. And if his mother wasn't already a Christian, she now converts to Christianity. Helena would go on to play a key role in Christianizing the Roman world. She was a very powerful person at Constantine's court. Constantine had two wives. We don't know whether he divorced his first wife or she died of natural causes. He had a son by his first wife named Crispus. His second wife, Fausta, bore several children to him. Both Fausta and Helena received the title of Augusta. They were both powerful women, and rivalry between the two of them was inevitable and a constant danger. Coin portraits show Helena as handsome and dignified. She wears a diadem, the sign of royalty, and a modest mantle. Her coins show a robed female figure holding a lowered olive branch with the legend, Safety. Faustus coins show a woman holding two children and the legend, Hope, a reference to Faustus' motherhood. Well, the rivalry between these two women became a matter of life and death in the year 326, when a scandal broke out. Fausta accused Constantine's son from his first marriage, Crispus. She accused him of having made a pass at her. Constantine was outraged. He put his son on trial. Crispus was declared guilty, and he was executed. And then, afterwards, Constantine came to the conclusion that it had all been a terrible miscarriage of justice, that Crispus was innocent and Fausta had lied. It was none other than his mother Helena who convinced him of this and persuaded him that her grandson had been killed unjustly. Fearing vengeance, Fausta committed suicide in an overheated bath. Like Crispus, Fausta was banned from official records. Meanwhile, the imperial family suffered disgrace. How could they bounce back? Well, the following year, they did so because Constantine sent his mother, Helena, on a pilgrimage to the east. She went to Syria, Palestina, the province that had been originally been named Judea and that had been re renamed by the Romans after a Jewish revolt. The mission to the east was part piety and part public relations in order to repair the damage done to the imperial house by the events of the previous year. In Syria, Palestina, Helena located the key sites where Jesus lived and walked, particularly in Jerusalem. She was on an official mission with access to unlimited government funds, which she used to build new churches and to beautify existing ones and to help the poor. She founded beautiful churches in Bethlehem and on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Also in Jerusalem, Constantine sponsored the building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre 
on the site of the resurrection. Part of that church, much renovated, still exists. Originally, there stood next to it a magnificent basilica, now no longer standing. The Romans had destroyed Jerusalem as a punishment for Jewish revolts. They had rebuilt it, but as a pagan city rather than a Jewish one. And instead of calling it Jerusalem, they called it Ilia Capitolina, after the Emperor Hadrian and after the chief god of Rome, Capitoline, Jupiter. Now, under Constantine, the Romans rebuilt Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem again, but it was not a Jewish city or a pagan one. It was now a Christian city. And as for Syria, Palestina, it was rebranded as the Christian Holy Land. What had been a backwater province now became the center of Christian pilgrimage. Of course, making Syria, Palestina the Christian Holy Land has had very long-lasting historical consequences that are still with us to this day. And Helena, the emperor's mother, played a key role in making it happen. Not long after her return from the Holy Land, Helena died in Constantinople around 328. Her son, Constantine, loyal to the end, was by her side. He sent his mother's body to Rome, where she had lived since the year 312. There, the body was laid to rest in an elaborate porphyry sarcophagus in a mausoleum, a domed rotunda in shape, a mausoleum that stands beside a martyr's church outside the city. You can still see the sarcophagus today, as millions of visitors do every year in the Vatican Museum. And you can see the ruins of the mausoleum as well, but if you do, you will be one of the very few who does so. They stand in a park on the edge of Rome, but they are poorly publicized, and very few visitors ever go there. Helena, however, is not forgotten. She is recognized as a saint for Orthodox Christians, for Roman Catholics, and for Anglicans. If Constantine was the father of Christianity as the Roman religion, then Helena was the mother. Three Roman emperors, three mothers, Tiberius and Livia, Nero and Agrippina, Constantine and Helena. We go from mother as goddess to mother as victim of matricide to mother as saint. Such was the trajectory of the mothers of Roman emperors. Well, thank you for joining me today. I hope I have convinced you that the relationship between Roman emperors and their mothers was quite a fascinating one. Next time, we will look at a third topic, love and sex. And I want to remind you my new book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Please join us next time for Antiquitas. Theme music by Lush Life.